Well, good evening, everyone. Good to see you. Uh, my name is Michael. If you don't know me, I'm one of the uh, ministers here in this church. Uh, I'm going to start by praying for us, uh, and then we'll open up Luke 5 and 6. Let me pray. Uh, dear Lord, Heavenly Father, we thank you for tonight. Thank you for coming together, together, together to worship you. And please help us now when we come to your word. Help us to clear up our mind and help us to listen to uh, what you have to say to us. Yes, that's we pray. Amen. For those of you who know me, I love my playing. And so tonight, I've got two stories to tell you about planes. The first one is this. Now, do you know that Sydney Airport has one of the most restrictive curfews acts in the world? The Sydney Airport Curfew Act 1995, as it is known, stipulates that no aircraft shall depart or arrive between 11 p.m. to 6 a.m., with a few exceptions. So mostly small propeller plane, small cargo jet, or business jet, or emergency. Now, the fine for breaching the act is enormous. Currently, it's between $110,000 to $550,000. This act is strictly enforced. Let me give an example. Now, on August the 8th, 2003, a Virgin Blue flight from Melbourne was coming to Sydney, and the plane was descending towards the runway. It was just 200 feet above the ground. The landing was aborted, and a flight returned to Melbourne. The reason was the time at the time was 45 seconds past 11 p.m. It was 45 seconds after the curfew has begun. During the go-around, the engines will be at maximum thrust. Now, I'm sure the residents around the airport who have heard the plane thundering past their homes. This is one of the examples to show that the Sydney Airport Curfew Act 1995 is quite inflexible. It is often criticized for its inflexibility. Let me turn to another story on plane two. This one. It happened on September the 11th, 1974. An Eastern Airline DC-9 crashed on landing to Charlotte in South Carolina. Only 10 passengers and crew survived. It was very foggy, and the pilots had a great deal of difficulty to find the runway. The crash investigation found that both pilots were so fixated to find the runway that no one checked the altitude of the plane, so the plane kept on descending until it hit the ground. The crash investigation also found that, also discovered that during the approach, both pilots engaged in unnecessary and non-pertinent conversation, ranging from politics to used cars. In short, they found one of the contributing factors was both pilots were distracted. And so six years later, the FAA implemented the sterile copy rule. What it means is pilots must not engage in non-essential conversations or activities during the critical parts of the flight, takeoff and landing, or whenever the plane is flying below 10,000 feet. Now, rules such as this one have saved many, many lives and is enforced worldwide today because it saves life, unlike the Sydney Airport Curfew Act 1995. Now, today we'll look at Luke chapter 5 and 6 to see how some rules are good and necessary, but some rules are unnecessary and are creating a burden on people. Now, packing up from where we left off last time in our series in Luke, Jesus is still in Galilee. He's there teaching people about God, performing miracles and wonder. 
And we have seen the different responses people had to Jesus. The Pharisees and the teachers of the law, they particularly didn't like Jesus. They didn't respond very well to him. They didn't believe that Jesus is God's son, the Messiah. Have a look at verse 33 with me on chapter 5. The Pharisees said to him, John's disciples often fast and pray, and so do the disciples of the Pharisees, but yours go on eating and drinking. Now, their issues with Jesus' disciples wasn't about them praying. It's good that they pray, but it's about their lack of fasting. Now, fasting is when we choose to go without food for a period of time. Fasting dates back to Leviticus 16, when God commands his people to fast on the Day of Atonement, which is the tenth day of the seventh month each year. Why? Because to show repentance of the heart. Elsewhere in the Bible, we also saw other people fast. Jonah is another example. When Jonah finally went to Nineveh to announce God's judgment, the people fasted there. It says that the Ninevites believed God. A fast was proclaimed, and all of them, from the greatest to the least, put on sackcloth. They fasted to express the, their repentance of their heart. Israelites also fasted to express their grief. When Israelites returned from exile, they saw Jerusalem, their old city, was in ruin. And so the prophet Nehemiah, he fasted to express his grief. When I heard these things, I sat down and wept. For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. But in the Old Testament, the only requirement for fasting is on the Day of Atonement. 10th day of the 7th month. But the Pharisees, they have changed the rule. Luke 18 tells us that, further down the book of Luke, tells us that they fasted twice a week. Instead of fasting, what God commanded his people in the Old Testament to fast once a year. But the Pharisees changed it to twice a week. And so Jesus explained to them in a parable, now, have anyone been to a wedding reception or party before? Yep, most of you, some of you have, yep. What can you find there? What can you find at a wedding reception? Lots of food, yep, what else? A cake, yep, the wedding cake, yep, what else? What else can you find? Drinks, music, yep, yep, what else? The bride and the groom, that's right. So, the question then is, if you're invited to a wedding reception, should you fast? No. You shouldn't fast. It's going to be quite rude. It's a happy occasion, party, right? Now, the Bible tells us this. Jesus is often portrayed as the bridegroom, or as the groom, and we are his bride. Uh, let me show you on Revelation chapter 19 that tells us what happens when Jesus returns. So this is yet to come. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory. For the wedding of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. Then the angel said to me, Write this. Blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. Now, Jesus' disciples, they were with him. Why would they fast? It was a time of joy. Jesus was still with them. But Jesus said the time will come when they will fast. That time is when the bridegroom, when the, when the groom is taken away from them. In those days, they will fast. So the time for his disciples to fast is after he died, when they are grieving. 
question, my next question is this. Does this command apply to us today? Should we fast today? Do the Bible commands us to fast? Now, question then is, has Jesus been taken away from us? Yes and no. So yes, Jesus is not with us anymore. He's, he died. He came back to life. He's now in heaven, sitting at God's right hand. He will come back to judge us again. So he's not with us. But in a way, he is with us because his spirit, the Holy Spirit, is with us. In John 14, Jesus said this to his disciples, I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate to help you and be with you forever, the Spirit of truth. I will not leave you as orphans, and I will come to you. God's Spirit is with us today. We have the Holy Spirit. And when Jesus came back to life, he met his disciples, Peter, Thomas, Nathaniel, and two other disciples. And he said this to them in John 21. He said, he, he, he said to them, Come, have breakfast with me. Come and eat with me. In Jesus, we have the freedom. We have the freedom to fast or not to fast. If it helps you to focus on God, go for it. But there's no command in the Bible that tells us that we must fast today. Jesus' teaching is new and requires a new approach. And so Jesus explained this to, in a parable to the Pharisee that he, his teaching is new. Coming to the Old Testament law, it requires a new approach. And so he told them in a parable, the parable of old and new. Now, let's say if you have a tear on your old shirt, would you buy a new one, cut the patch out, and then patch on the old one? Why not? You destroyed the new one and would have fixed the old one. No, so you destroyed two shirts in the process. It's a crazy idea because you ruined the new one and the old one won't be fixed anyway. You're wasting your time and your money. And the other example is, back in Bible time, they haven't got wine bottle like we do today. And so they use wine skin to store wine. Now, wine skin is made up of skins of animals, usually goats. As the new wine is fermented, it will cause the skin to expand and stretch. But what happens if you put new wine skin in, or new wine into old wine skin, which has already been stretched? The old wine skin becomes brittle and it bursts and you lose all the wine. And so the new wine must be put into the new wine skin. Have a look at verse 39 with me. I think there's a very interesting verse. So verse 39. And no one, after drinking the old wine, wants the new, for they say the old is better. Now, for those of you who drink or who drink wine, um, we know that old wine costs more than new. Old wine usually is better than the new wine. So good wine tends to have aged a little bit. And there are people who will only drink old wine because it does taste better. But Jesus is saying that the people in this story, in this parable, who will only drink old wine, they are so fixated to the old way of life that they wouldn't accept anything new. They were so fixated with the Old Testament law and the old way of life. 
And so the old garment or the old one here represent the Pharisees, that they wouldn't accept anything new. They wouldn't stick to the Old Testament law. But the new garment and the new one represent Jesus because Jesus is the new covenant. Jesus is the new covenant. Have a look at Jeremiah 31 with me. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah. This is the covenant I will make with the people of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their heart. I will be their God and they will be my people. For I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. Jesus is the new covenant. He didn't come to abolish the Old Testament practices, but Jesus came to fulfill it. The Bible between Genesis and Malachi is still God's word. The Old Testament of the Bible is still God's word. After his resurrection, Jesus was with his disciples and he explained this to them. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in the scripture concerning himself. The whole Bible points us to Jesus. Let's see an example of how this is at work. Idea of the Sabbath. Now, the idea of the Sabbath is to dedicate a day in a week to God. It is a holy day, a day that is for God. It began in Genesis 2. Uh, it says this, So on the seventh day, God rested from all his work. Then God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it he rested from all the work of creating that he had done. After God making the world, his work was completed. He rested. Now, God rested not because he is tired, because we know that God is all-powerful. God doesn't get tired. But God chose to stop working because his work is done. God set the Sabbath as a model for our life, to rest and to dedicate a day of our life to him. And in the Ten Commandments, Commandment 4, commands us to remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. On it, you should not do any work. So the idea from the Bible of Sabbath is, take a day to rest and to dedicate that day to God. That's the idea from the Bible. But the Pharisees have taken it to a whole different level. In fact, they came up with 39 categories of what is working. And so there are 39 things one mustn't do on a Sabbath. For example, sewing, ripping, threshing, selecting, baking, tearing. Also include writing two or more letters or erasing two or more letters, extinguishing a fire, and also in the modern time includes turning electricity on and off and the use of vehicle. A friend of mine went to Israel recently. He was there on the Sabbath. Now, have you guys been to a lift before? You know how you can press the different buttons? They can all make it look like a Christmas tree. Yeah? You know what I mean? Yeah? And so, in Israel, each lift got a Sabbath mode. What it means is on the Sabbath day, the lift will become an all-station service. It will stop at every single level so that people won't have to work so that they won't break the Sabbath. So essentially, the Sabbath has become a list of 
thou shalt not. Have a look at chapter 6, verse 1 with me. One Sabbath, Jesus was going through the grain fields, and his disciples began to pick some heads of grain, rub them in their, head, in their hands, and eat the kernels. Now, straight away, the Pharisees ruled this unlawful. Now, the problem wasn't about picking heads of grain. Because God, in the Bible, he allows people to pick grains off the field. Because some people were poor. God wants to look after those who come for food. So that wasn't the problem. But the problem was with what they did. They were reaping, they were threshing, and they were preparing food. And all of these would be classified as working in the eyes of the Pharisees. Now, question for you guys. Why do you think they had to pick the grains? Why did they pick the grains? They were hungry. Yeah, thank you. They were hungry. Uh, and what have they been doing? Before they came to this, what have they been doing? Jesus and his disciples, they were... Pardon? They were walking, what, and what, what, what have they been doing? Walking and what else? They were preaching. They were preaching, teaching people about God. Keep this in mind. Now, Jesus then used an example of King David in the Old Testament. King David is like a hero uh, for the Pharisees and we well respected by them. So in our other reading that Jeff, Jeff read for us in 1 Samuel 21, we saw how David was a man on a mission. He needed food. On the Sabbath, he went to the priest, but the only food available was the consecrated bread, which could only be eaten by the priest the next day. But the priest, Ahimelech, he gave David those consecrated bread. He broke the Sabbath rule. Now, why was this acceptable? Because David, the anointed king, was a man on a mission, and he was in need. If David was allowed to break the Sabbath for a good reason, how much more so for Jesus, the God's son? Now, can you see the similarity in this story? David, a man on a mission, he was allowed to break the Sabbath because he was in need. Jesus and his companions and disciples were on a mission too. The purpose of the Sabbath, don't forget, is to have a day dedicated to God and honor him. But the Pharisees, they added their extra rules. It created unnecessary burden for their followers. Obeying the Sabbath has become obeying a set of rules instead of honoring God. But following Jesus isn't about following a set of rules. God, Jesus made this declaration in verse 5. He says this, The Son of Man is the law of the Sabbath. Jesus the Creator is the Lord over the creation. The Son of God has the power and authority to override the legal part of the Sabbath. Have a look at how example of how Jesus has authority over the Sabbath. Let's read Luke chapter 6, verse 6, and see where was Jesus that day. So chapter 6, verse 6. On another Sabbath, he went to the synagogue and was teaching. Now, where was Jesus on the Sabbath? He was in the, in the synagogue. He was in the synagogue on a place where people go and worship God. The Son of God, Jesus, was at the synagogue on the Sabbath, a day that is dedicated to God. Now, the man in verse 6, his right hand was shivered, probably suffering from some form of muscular atrophy. And the Pharisees and the teachers of the law watching very, very closely 
to see if Jesus would heal this man on the Sabbath. Now, according to the Pharisees, healing is acceptable on the Sabbath, if and only if there was danger to life. Now, does the Bible say anything about healing on the Sabbath? No, it doesn't. Therefore, in theory, people should have the freedom to choose how they want to live on the Sabbath. Now, when you read verses 8 to, 8 to 10, I want you to read it with me and see who did the work here. Let's see who did the work here. Now, Stuart told me a few weeks ago, told us a few weeks ago, that in the synagogue, the teacher would be sitting down to teach. So imagine Jesus sat down in the synagogue as he was teaching, and this happened. Verse 8. But Jesus knew what they were thinking and said to the man with the silver hand, Get up and stand in front of everyone. So he got up and stood there. Then Jesus said to them, I ask you which is lawful on the Sabbath, to do good or to do evil, to save life or to destroy it. He looked around at them all and then said to the man, Stretch out your hand. He did so, and his hand was completely restored. Now, who worked? Who did the work here? Who worked here? The man? What by Peter? He got up and he stretched out his hand. So the man did the work. Jesus is talk, but the man actually did the work. Jesus spoke, the man worked. Now, the reaction with the Pharisees, they were furious. They were furious at Jesus. Now, if they thought the man did the work and broke the Sabbath, then they should be angry at the man. But here, they're angry at Jesus. Now, if they are angry at Jesus, were they acknowledging that Jesus miraculously healed this man? And in so doing, acknowledging that Jesus is the Son of God who has power to heal. I thought it was interesting. Jesus healed a man on the Sabbath because he is the law of the Sabbath and Jesus chose human needs over man-made laws. Jesus is not bound by man-made laws. The Pharisee and the teacher of the law, they believe that salvation comes through by works. They believe they need to earn God's brownie points. But we are saved by grace through faith alone. Our confidence should be in the cross. In Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 to 9, it says this, For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and it is not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. Now, who is Jesus? Jesus is a bridegroom, he is the new wine, and he is the law of the Sabbath. He is the king of all kings. Under the new covenant, Jesus has fulfilled the Old Testament laws, and so now we have the freedom to live as a Christian. We don't need to earn brownie points for God. We can't anyway, unless we are perfect all the time. Jesus achieved that for us on the cross. So we need to have confidence of the saving power of the cross. The Pharisee didn't. Jesus has paid it all on the cross, and we are his redeemed people. He is the law of the Sabbath. What about you? Is Jesus your law of the Sabbath too? Or is the law still the law of the Sabbath? Who is your Lord of the Sabbath? On the one hand, 
who have legalism, which is salvation by work. The Pharisees have no confidence that the Son of Man could save them. And so they believe they have to earn God's brownie points. Now, I don't think that's our problem. I don't think our problem is we kept on trying to earn God's brownie points. I think we know that we can't, which is a good thing. But I think, or on part, we could be on the other side. I think we've become too lax, too lazy in trying to honor God with our life. Are we too lazy in trying to live the new life for Jesus? Our church vision calls on us to live the message of new life, to be a faithful, adventurous, compassionate, and enduring apprentice of Jesus. I think sometimes we can be too lazy or too lax to do it. Our attitude could be, should be right, no worries or anything, or anything goes. Let me ask you this question. How do you spend your Sabbath day? Do you dedicate that day to God? How easy is it for you to miss church? We have three services here at New Life, 8.45, 10.30, and here at 6 p.m. If you can't come to a regular service, do you try to go to another service? What about if you have shift work? Do you try to find time in the week to dedicate a day to God? How are you and your family going at dedicating a day to God? Now, taking a Sabbath is a good spiritual practice, but we all live in a very, very busy life, and it's very easy to see a week to see a week come and a week go. It's March already. Taking a, a Sabbath for God is a very helpful practice. It helps us to make God to be a focus on the day in the week. Our church this year, our aim is to make more space, to grow deeper with God and with each other. So taking a day and dedicating it to God will help us to have more space to grow deeper with God and with each other. How can you make a day in the week to make God to be the focus? It may not be on a Sunday. We all have different lives, different circumstances. It may not necessarily be on a Sunday, especially if you have shift work. I can't tell you what to do. Otherwise, that will be salvation by works. There will be legalism. But remember, we have the freedom to live as safe Christians. But remember, Jesus is the Lord of the Sabbath. We need to live a holy Sabbath day for him to find a day that is dedicated to God and to honor him. We have more space to grow deeper with God and with each other. Let me pray. Dear Lord, Heavenly Father, we thank you uh, for Jesus, thank you uh, for that he died on the cross uh, for us and now come back to life and we have new life in him. We pray that you help us to honor you and to live the massive new life every day. In your son's name we pray. Amen. Um, questions? Anybody got any questions about the sermon tonight? Anyone? Any questions? Anything you're not sure of? I think I can explain fully. Now is the opportunity to ask a question.